Okay. So, just in terms of the concepts of the Dharma, these maps that we're going to be looking today and tomorrow give you some idea of how to conceptualize the Dharma so you get an idea of which teaching belongs under which category and so that you understand how to act on that teaching, what that teaching is meant to be meant to, to do in light of karma. This is always the question, what, what is this teaching meant to do? What do you do with this teaching where it's meant to get you? And that means as you get over to the other shore. So that's in terms of issues of understanding that get cleared up when we start looking at the path, the maps that the Buddha gives of how the path should be, should be followed. Finally, questions of character. The idea of character in Buddhism basically comes down to the fact that you are harmless in your search for happiness and you're always truthful. Those are the two big things that you hold in mind. You have the idea that what things you have to hold on to in order to be harmless, what things you have to be willing to let go, some things you're going to have to sacrifice. Part of being harmless is holding to the precepts. And there are times, as the Buddha said, you may have to suffer loss. There are times when you know, someone can take advantage of you in terms of negotiation or take advantage of you because you're going to always tell the truth, whereas they don't feel compelled to tell the truth. You have to be willing to make those sacrifices in order to hold on to your virtue. So, so that for the Buddha is harmlessness. But also it goes on to being just, not just observing the precepts. You never try to get anybody else to do something that would harm them. In other words, you don't get them to break the precepts. You don't try to give rise to greed, aversion, and delusion in their minds. In other words, you have to remember everybody else is an agent as well, and the way they could harm themselves most severely would be for them to break the precepts. So one way of harming them would be to get them to break the precepts, and a way of being harmless is not to get them to break the precepts. And we'll talk about this a bit, some of the implications of this later on. And part of these questions of character, the Buddha actually recommends not only honesty and harmlessness, but he also develops developing what he would call a sense of shame and compunction. Um, shame in the sense that you have certain people you respect and you would be ashamed for them to see you do certain things. This is healthy shame. It's the opposite of shamelessness. Now here in the West, the idea of shame has gotten a bad rap because they usually think of shame as the opposite of pride or self-esteem. But here it's a different kind of shame. It's that when you're shameless, you don't care what other people think. It doesn't matter who they are. You're just going to do what you want to do. That, for the Buddha, is a, you know, is a really severe character, character problem. And also he talks about the developing a quality he calls, I guess the best translation is compunction. In other words, you see that by doing something you're going to cause harm. You don't want to do it because it would cause harm. In other words, you're not apathetic. You know, say, I don't care what the results are going to be down the line, I'm just going to do what I want to do. That kind of apathy is not, is not the sign of what would, the Buddha would recommend as a quality of the character. So what this means altogether is that the Dharma is something that is best seen as a quality of the heart that is first developed in a relationship with someone you trust. You learn about it within that relationship. And as for you, you become a person of character too. In other words, the Dharma can be mastered only by people who have emotional maturity, the proper character, you know, an upright character, um, which is one of the things that makes the Dharma so special. It's not just anybody can walk in and kind of figure it out. You have to develop your, your whole self as a, as a hu human being. Um, 
So that's kind of the, our introduction. We talk about how the, the readings, as I said, are maps to awakening. Out of the readings, only six of them are the, the major maps. You may want to write, write this down. Passages number one, six, seven, ten, eleven, and fourteen are the maps. Again, one, six, seven, ten, eleven, and fourteen. And the others are to fill in details on the maps. You'll notice that some of the maps overlap and some of them put the factors in different orders. Um, but they give a pretty good overview of the kind of questions you should bring to the practice, the kind of qualities you want to develop, who you want to find to learn the Dharma from, and what is implied in the relationship that you have with that, with that, with that teacher. But before we look at the, the readings, I have any questions on what I just said? Well, it's, some of this goes way back. Um, there was a tendency they had in India. When a king came into power, he would, he would set up, he would announce formal debates. And he said he wanted all the different religions in his kingdom to come and debate certain questions. And the king would be the one who would set the questions. And the Buddha told the monks, don't go to those debates. Because one, one of the sort of the assumptions of the debate is that whatever the question the king asks is, is a good, has to be a good question and is worth answering. And if you look at the Buddha's way of teaching, there are a lot of times he would take a question, he would put it aside. He said, this is not an appropriate question. Now, if the Buddha is just talking to people who come to see him, you, you can do that. But if the king says, okay, I want an answer to this question, and you say, it's a stupid question. <laughs> the king's not going to like it. And so one of the questions that came up again and again is, is there a self? And if so, what, it is it? what is it? And if there isn't a self, then how can you explain human beings? And there were some Buddhist monks who couldn't help themselves. They wanted to answer the question. And they came up with the idea, the, the teaching, there is no self. And once you have that there is no self, then everything else gets changed. Well, that's one of the questions that the Buddha actually put aside. He never answered whether there is or is not a self. He talks about the way we form a concept of self, skillful ways that we use the concept of self, skillful ways that we use the concept of not-self. But the question of whether or not there is a self, is that it's, it, it leads to a tangle of views and a wilderness of views, that, that kind of thing. So that particular issue goes way back. So that kind of reordering has been going on for a long time. Yes? Primarily it's a fact, faculty of your memory, the things you hold in mind. Because remember, the Buddhist picture of, of how the mind works is that it is primarily active. We'll be getting into this a little bit later. But when he defines dependent core rising, which is his explanation of how suffering comes about, you may notice that your awareness of the six senses comes only halfway through. In other words, things, things don't start with sensory input. The mind is already going out towards sensory input. It already has plans and you know, ideas of what it should be doing with what the stuff that's coming in. And so mindfulness is the things you should keep in mind as you're approaching sensory, sensory contact, so you can figure out, okay, given that this is something coming up, what should I do with it? So these are the things you keep in mind. And the big framework is, as I said, the, the duties of the Four Noble Truths. 
If something should be comprehended, something should be abandoned, something should be developed, and you're trying to figure out when something comes up, is this a quality of mind or is this a situation that I should try to continue or is it something I should try to put an end to? So instead of just watching things arising and passing away, there are some things you try to make arise and keep from passing away. In other words, that you try to prevent from arising, and if they do arise, you try to try to make them pass away. You're more you're more proactive. The more questions, the better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, there's there's a there's a sutta on the five ways of dealing with distracting thoughts. The first method is that if you realize that you're you're wandered off into something that's unskillful, you just bring yourself back. And the second method, if the first one doesn't work, is you try to look at the drawbacks of that unskillful thought. So remind yourself, where, is this, where would this lead me? Or my favorite one is, if this were a movie, would I pay for it? <laughs> yeah, the acting is horrible and <laughs> the storyline is so predictable. <laughs> and then the third one is basically ignoring. In other words, you can let that thought just continue to chatter off in one corner of your mind, but you're not going to pay any attention. It's like dealing with you know, a dog comes up and a stray dog comes up and wants to be fed, but you don't want the stray dog around, so you don't feed it. And then even it may whine and wiggle and everything, but after a while it'll go away. And the fourth one is to notice that when you're thinking that thought, there will be a pattern of tension someplace in the body. And so you, wherever you notice that tension is, you relax it. And that makes it, helps make the thought go away. And then the fifth one is to grit your teeth, press the, your tongue <laughs> against the roof of your mouth, say, I will not think that thought. You know? And in the forest tradition, they also recommend just having a meditation word that you repeat really fast, like buto, 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 buto. So basically jam the airways. You remember Radio Free Europe, right? I don't, there are not many of us left who. <laughs> they used to jam the airways, you know. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so. So yeah, those are the five ways of dealing with distracting thoughts. Very little, mainly on the canon. Because the commentaries were written under the influence of the idea of there being three characteristics, that there is no self, and, and they kind of readjust the whole teaching in that direction. The commentaries are also written under the influence of the idea that the mind is a lot more passive than the Buddha portrays it. In other words, you're just kind of sitting there perfectly okay, and then this stimulus comes in and then you react. Whereas from the Buddha, from the in the canon, it's that you're 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 out there looking for trouble, already. You know what can I get out of this? There's nothing out there to be greedy about, but you you know you want you want something to be greedy about. You find it. I mean, this is why we have Amazon. <laughs> it's also where we have hate radio. <laughs> you want to get worked up about something? Turn on the radio. The radio doesn't turn itself on. <laughs> well, he, he was looking at his audience. With some people, you don't have to teach that. They already know. And this is one of the reasons why the, the, the suttas will pretty much tell you, who was the Buddha talking to? What was, and sometimes, what was the question? What was this person coming? What purpose were they coming for? So you have to get a sense of, you know, when he's talking to Brahmins, he'll adjust his teaching one way. When he's talking to the monks, he'll teach it, adjust it another way. And we'll be getting into the second map here, which is one basically someone he feels is it should be ready for the Four Noble Truths, but needs some preparation first, whereas the ascetics didn't need that preparation. I mean, this is one of the problems with reading 
Dharma talks by the Tayajans. You don't know who he was talking to. Now you hear you know, John Cha saying, let go, let go, let go. Well, you have to say, well, okay, who, who's holding on? Because <laughs> there are also times when he would actually have you hold on. Two stories come to mind. One is when there was a storm that went through the monastery one time and did a lot of damage. And so the next morning, John Cha went out to kind of survey the damage done. And there was this one monk sitting in a hut that only had half a roof. The rest of it had been blown off. And so he asked, well, why aren't you fixing the roof? And the monk said, I'm practicing equanimity. <laughs> and John Cha said, this is the equanimity of a water buffalo. Fix the roof, you know. Ube ka kong kwai. And there was another time he was invited into the palace for a meal. And it was at a time when the students and, and the army were at, basically at loggerheads. And both sides were asking for the king's support. And the king was asking the Johns, you know, what should I do in a case like this? And the John Shah was number three in the line. So the other two at John's first basically were counseling equanimity. When it came to John Shah, he says, well, equanimity is good, but you also have to have discernment. So it's not always just letting go. So you have to look at who were these people teaching at what time. And sometimes, as, as I said, with the, the Dharma talks of the Ajans, it's hard to tell. And especially in that sutta to Rahula, he's counseling shame. And you have to remember, Rahula, like the Buddha, was born into the noble warrior class. And the noble warrior caste, had, they had a different sense of shame than an American psychologist. For them, was the idea, okay, we are a member of a high class, and this, this is a kind of behavior, these sorts of behavior are below us. So it's not a lack of self-esteem, it's actually the shame that comes with high self-esteem. That's one good thing to keep in mind. And the other is, you know, Rahula was seven years old, <laughs> and he did some basic training. But I found that, you know, it's always good to kind of keep that teaching to Rahula in mind, because it really gives you a good understanding of karma. Because you ask yourself, you know, if you're going to teach your children about how to act in the world, what would you like to teach them about action? And one is, it depends on your, on your intentions. Your intentions make a difference. But two, you've got to be careful not to harm anybody. And three, if you make a mistake, come tell mom and dad. You know? So the basic assumption is that your actions do make a difference. And you can learn from your actions. You're, you know, we're, not, we're not in a world of determinism. And that being truthful about your mistakes is how you learn how to avoid them in the future. So it teaches qualities of character. It's good to keep